Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust's Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organisation, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. Well, sad to relate, it's been a tough week in the financial markets this week, culminating on Friday with the disturbing news of the largest bank failure since the global financial crisis in 2008. Silicon Valley Bank, which is now in the hands of regulators, was the go-to bank for venture capitalists and startups in Silicon Valley and surfed the golden age of tech. I guess we can call it that, hoovering up billions of deposits from investors and tech companies during the good times, which were, of course, not that long ago. Only for it all to come crashing down with alarming speed this week. Uh, The bank has been brought down not by imprudent lending, which is usually the case when we have bank failures, but by its inability to manage its balance sheet effectively in a period when central banks are in full-on inflation fighting mode. The Federal Reserve's repeated hikes in interest rates, which it deems necessary in order to bring inflation under control, has generated what was briefly this week, so it appears, the most inverted yield curve in bond market history by which is meant the record gap between the yields of short and long-term government bonds, Uh, the former now being roughly 1% higher than the latter. And that, of course, is an inversion of the normal state of affairs, hence the name, the inverted yield curve that uh, has been attracting so much attention recently, often seen as a precursor to a recession, it should be said. Uh, With cash deposits flooding out of the bank in pursuit of those higher short-term rates, and perhaps also demands from some of its tech companies for cash, the only way that Silicon Valley Bank could bring its assets and liabilities back into balance was by liquidating some of its holdings of bonds and other assets and could only do so at a heavy loss, which in turn only sparked a further run on its deposits, leading to a what appears to be a classic bank failure. The regulators will now have to clear up the mess, and there's no guarantee because a lot of these deposits were not covered by insurance that... Uh, all the money that was deposited with the bank will be recovered. Coming after the gilts market crisis last autumn, which in a way was a product of the same tension between short and long-term interest rates and the collapse of FTX, the cryptocurrency exchange, with allegations of fraud and so on, it's a further reminder of how fragile financial markets can be when things start to go wrong against a backcloth of potentially seismic changes in inflation, interest rates, uh, and of course, the economy itself. So there's going to be more time in the weeks ahead to look deeper into the ramifications of this, uh, uh, what I think we have to regard as an important event with global implications. Uh, But one obvious question will be whether the Federal Reserve decides it now has to uh, scale back its inflation fighting plans, at least for a while, in order to deal with this latest crisis, just as the Bank of England had to do temporarily back in the autumn after the gilts market meltdown. The old market saying is that the Fed will go on tightening policy until something cracks. Well, maybe something just has. We'll have to wait and see. It's easy to jump to conclusions and to go into a panic mode, uh, but there's no doubt that this is a significant event and it will be a very important test of where we are in the market cycle uh, to see whether the fallout from this is positive or negative. If it's positive, it will prove that there is more resilience in the system than many expect. Uh, but if it's negative, we could be into the second down leg of the bear market that we had last year, at least if for equities. That's all to play for, though. Investors, though, were quick to pick up on the potential implications of all this, with bond yields dropping uh, sharply this week and equity markets uh, having one of their toughest weeks for some time. The S&P 500 was down more than 5% on the week, and most other equity markets were moving in the same direction. Uh, The FTSE All Share, which closes obviously several hours before the US market, was still down well over 1.5% on Friday. Uh, Looking through the list of listed investment trusts, I could only find 40 out of more than 400, which were showing a positive share price performance over the week, with a number of private equity and Japanese trusts uh, notable among them. The biggest losers included uh, Chinese trusts, commodity producers, small cap trusts, and commercial property, which had been rallying a little bit since the sell-off in the second half of last year, but was again in the eye of the storm this week. In this week's podcast, I talked to James Carthew, former fund manager who's now a director of Quoted Data, the investment trust research company. We've had him on the podcast before, and we talked through about the latest news and results from the investment trust sector, which includes this week annual results from two of the oldest and largest global equity trusts, uh, F&C and Alliance Trust, 
also Oakley Capital Investments and DGI9 Infrastructure. We also had interim results uh, from Seraphim Space, uh, one of the more interesting newcomers to the investment trust sector not so long ago, and Strategic Equity Capital, which is a UK smaller companies trust. And there were interesting announcements also from MyGo Opportunities, where Nick Greenwood, uh, well known to listeners to this program, has resigned from Premier Mighton, the manager of that trust, raising some question marks about what will happen to it in the future. We discuss that in a moment. Also interim announcements from US Solar and Henderson Opportunities Trust. Uh, More on all those in a moment, plus a discussion with Stephen Tredgett of Oakley Capital about Oakley Capital Investments' latest results and the ever-topical issue of private equity discounts. Are they too wide or are they faithfully reflecting what is actually happening underneath the bonnet in the private equity world? Please note that both these segments were recorded before the full story of the failure of Silicon Valley Bank had become clear. As always, there's a full summary of all the latest news and market and trust movements on the Moneymakers website. Subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle can also see this week's in-depth profile, which is of Invesco Asia, ticker IAT. And if you missed it, you might find having another listen to last week's Q&A with Bruce Stout, manager of Murray International. Again, it covers some of the issues that this week's dramatic news from California has highlighted. Next week, in addition to our normal features, we will be discussing, among other things, Japan and the renewables sector. When I caught up with uh, James Carthew of Quoted Data this week on Friday afternoon, just before the uh, US market opened, we were waiting to see what happens there. But uh, we kicked off by talking about the markets. And, well, James, it's been a tough February. And this week, uh, we've also seen some more issues around both the bond market and uh, the equity markets. Bond yields going up, essentially, in response to latest Fed announcements and speculation, and equities being uh, under pressure. What's your take on where we are at the moment? It's impossible to know when you've tamed inflation or not, I think. And I think at the moment, the Fed are erring on the side of caution. So they are threatening larger rate rises than we were perhaps anticipating before. I think most people had reckoned that the, the worst was behind us. And obviously, that's unnerved bond markets. It seems to have caught some of the US banks on the hop as well. There's a Californian bank called SVB, which is left with a sort of fairly big hole in its balance sheet by the looks of things. And that's unnerved markets again last night. So um, there are all sorts of knock-on implications. Obviously, it's not helpful if you're a, a growth-type stock, because all, as we know, they, they all fell on the back of higher rates. It should maybe be more helpful for the sort of value-type things. And we've seen some of that coming through in performance. But by and large, there's not really much that we can do about it. It's more mere mortals. We just have to sit and wait and hope for the best, I think. Indeed. I mean, it is true that I mean the year got off to a very good start in terms of equity markets and bond market confidence that inflation was uh, indeed on the way to being licked and that the Fed might be about to pivot. But uh, that certainly hasn't happened so far. If you look at the market movers in the investment trust sector this week, I mean, I noticed that we've seen the kind of falls mainly from those who would be affected by higher bond yields. That's the sort of knee-jerk reaction. So we've seen uh, BlackRock World Mining has come off quite a lot, as have some of the property sector and the infrastructure trusts, which are all kind of seen as proxies to some extent for what's happening in uh, to bond yields and so on. So no real surprises, I guess. What's your sense of what investors are feeling? I mean, is a, we're going back into a more cautious mode now, people being rather nervous about coming back into the investment trust sector. I mean, most sectors are now trading at a discount. And about half the investment trusts are trading at a discount. So um, what do you feel about that, about markets? No, it's definitely true. I understand why investors would be cautious. It, it does feel as though, I've seen some commentary around this, that the US Federal Reserve is determined to sort of tip the economy into recession. And that obviously has a knock-on effect for, for all sorts of funds, particularly sort of things like commodities, so like you said, world mining is bound to be affected. And obviously, if we've got higher rates, as we've mentioned, the growth stocks, but obviously there's also the knock-on effect and things like renewables and all the other alternative asset-type funds that are valued on discounted cash flow basis and higher rates spell negative moves on their own EVs. So that might be why there's some wider discounts in that sort of area as well. So all those alternative assets going down, and I suppose a bit more worrying about the state of the economies, the global economy anyway. Indeed. And of course, next week we have the budget in the UK, but actually a lot of investment trusts, we'll see in a moment when we talk about some of the results that come out, they've actually benefited from the fact that sterling has been quite weak because the majority of the you know, earnings come from overseas, at least historically that's been the case. So it's not true for the renewables and infrastructure so much. Do you think the budget is going to have an impact? I mean, it's uh, corporation tax is uh, due to go up and we've got a lot of personal taxation going up as well. 
at least on the current plans. Do you think that's going to be a factor that might also weigh on sentiment and uh, maybe affect the pound as well? After what happened last September, I, I can't see any real return to tax cutting and spend type budget. That, that, that seems unlikely. So I think it's probably going to be more of the same, maybe more kind of tinkering on the edges. We've obviously seen some delays in things like the infrastructure investment, HS2. I know they extended the timetable for that. So, um, no, I don't see any major decisions coming out of this, to be honest. I mean, one of the questions for Investment Trust is uh, we're coming to the end of the financial year. It's a sort of ISA season. And yet there's, um, well, I guess a lot of people leave it to the last minute in order to make their decisions. I used to be guilty of that myself, I have to say, but I've kind of learned a bit better of that now. I do it in the summer now normally when markets tend to be a bit weaker. But um, so there's not a lot of things that immediately kind of jump out and say they're really good value at the moment, given the uncertainty of the outlook. I mean, obviously, there are things trading on big discounts, as we'll discuss, private equity and so on. But they don't feel like particular bargains at this particular point. So uh, what do you think will happen? Do you think people will go back into fixed income, for example? I mean, with you know bond yields, that you can, in theory, get 3.6% on a two-year gilt. They won't by the time you pay the charges and the spread and everything else. It doesn't turn out to be quite that much. What do you think? Where do you think the money might be going? It is possible that people look more at bond funds. Definitely, they were in the doldrums for a long time because their returns were so low or they were taking a lot of risk on to try and get decent yield. And because now that the returns are a bit better than they were, I think that does make them look more interesting. But I, I suppose, actually, while we're in this sort of nervous, wider discount type environment where you know, everything looks like it might go horribly wrong, Probably, if we take a long-term view, it might turn out to be quite a good time to buy. So um, I wouldn't put anybody off. If, you, if you're a long-term investor, I wouldn't put anybody off investing their ISA money now, rather than wasting the opportunity. So the discount across the investor trust sector is, is now quite wide, at least on a weighted market cap basis. It's at around 14 15%, something like that, which is a lot, obviously a lot wider than it was a year ago or 12 months ago. And it's getting quite uh, wide by you know recent historical standards. So... You would think that come whenever we do see uh, some kind of better outlook ahead or investors turn more optimistic, we would see some retracement of that, would you not expect? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you'll get the double whammy effect of more buoyant mood, higher NEVs and narrower discounts. And, and so you should get decent outperformance of a equivalent open-ended fund, which is really what the sector is all about. Well, let's talk about a few of the trusts that have actually uh, announced this week. We've had some of the bigger names in the sector, always interesting ones to talk about. And if we're talking about where, you know, kind of cautious investors might put their money, I guess still for many people, the first port of call might be one of the bigger sort of global equity trusts or generalist trusts. And we've had two of those, the, well, the foreign and colonial as was investment trust, now part of the Columbia Threadneedle statement. They've put out their own results, as have the Alliance Trust. Back in the day when I started following investment trusts, these were the two biggest general investment trusts out there. But they've been through a kind of roller coaster period a little bit over the last 20 years or so. People began to question whether they were doing the right things, how exciting they were. And if you look at the figures this year, well, I guess they haven't done too badly in a sense. The uh, NAV total return for foreign colonial, FCIT is a ticker there, down 5.3%, a bit ahead of its benchmark, the All World Index, which is down around about 7 8%. And Alliance down 7.1% NAV total return. What do you make of those uh, results in the context of a bad year for the markets, uh, both bonds and equities down by more than 10% at one point? But that's not so bad, is it? No, not bad at all. I mean, it's always good, a little bit of outperformance. So even if you do lose money, we'd much prefer that you, you know, see sort of still made some money, but um, losing less than the market is, is obviously good news. And it's a sort of ongoing thing of, of improved relative performance for these funds. I think because for a long time, they look very boring relative to the Scottish mortgages of this world. But now the sort of more solid defensive characteristics of having a broadly based portfolio and in the Alliance Trust case, a definitely sort of broadly based strategy as well in terms of a mix of value and growth type styles, it does seem to be playing out. There are some nuances in there, actually. I mean, one of the things that I was picking up on is that Alliance Trust equity portfolio beat its benchmark, but F&Cs didn't, although you, you wouldn't have got that from the headline numbers. FNC was slightly bailed out by having some private equity exposure, and that added to the NEV. But both also benefited because they've got long-term borrowing, which is relatively cheap. And as interest rates have been going up, they have to revalue their debt, and, and that's actually added to the NEV. In FNC's case, that was a more powerful thing than the Alliance Trust. So that's what drove FNC's performance of the Alliance Trust, actually. It was, it was this 
revaluation of its debt, which I know is one of these sort of complicated maths type things that we all sort of get a bit high up about and maybe try to ignore. But um, actually, it does make a difference. Lions Trust has, has borrowed, well, until 2053 at less than 3%, and the government can't borrow that anymore. So um, it's obviously done a good job. So that is a good job. As you say, you make the point that you've got to look a little behind the numbers to see what's actually going on. I mean, what's interesting is that in F&C's case, they've been tweaking their kind of asset allocation, adding that private exposure. And I guess there's a question whether they've marked that down enough, uh, given what's happening elsewhere. You could have perhaps made that kind of a question for them. And Alliance Trust, of course, completely changed their strategy uh, back in 2017. But it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, since then, they set themselves a target of outperforming by 2% per annum. This is the approach taken by the Alliance Trust uh, using Willis, Towers, Watson to pick the managers for them in a style agnostic way, as you say. But they haven't actually achieved that yet. And they've got a kind of review coming up, I think, after seven years. So that will be, what, next year. So um, how do you think the shareholders will respond to that? Or how will the board respond to that, for that matter? So far, I mean, what they've said this week is that the board is still happy with the approach and what Willis Charles Watson is doing. It is unfortunate, I suppose, that, that this period since they've done it, we, we've experienced two of the sort of biggest bear markets we've had in ages with COVID and then now with, with these rising interest rates. And it's a difficult environment to outperform in. I think relative to the, its investment trust peer group, it's going to look okay. And if your view of the world is, is limited to that, I think that the people will be happy. I can imagine that if you're trying to compare it to an ETF, perhaps, you know, so one of these index tracking type things, which tend to have quite low charges, it might not stack up. And then you come back to the whole debate about whether you really should have an active investment policy or a passive investment policy. I think, again, the long term will, will prove decisive in this. My feeling is that in the long term, the active policy and the willis has watching approach will work. But I just don't think they've had the best time to prove that at the moment. So actually, actually much will depend on what happens this year, probably. Yeah. I mean, it's always difficult, isn't it, when you set out a target, which is what you presumably do in order to get the job. And then, but sometimes one does hear this kind of, well, you know, we would have outperformed except for, you know, something X happened or Y happened. But of course, X and Y does happen. That's the way the world works. We get things like that. But um, I agree. I mean, the process to me looks very sensible and very sound and I'm sure it's well executed. Uh, But it does underline this basic problem when you're competing in global equity markets, when you could, in theory, do it yourself with a couple of ETFs, you know, what are you paying for in terms of uh, active management? Well, part of it, I suppose, is the income, to be honest. Um, it does pay a, a decent yield now. It's not as high as a normal income fund, but it's still 2.5%. And that's going to grow. It's, it's one of these ASC dividend heroes. So it's got a 56-year track record of growing its dividend every year. I think that that's a nice sort of sleep at night type thing. The board don't want to be jeopardised that. So I think there are, there are definite arguments for, for why you want to persevere with it. And FNC, of course, so they've only been increasing their dividend for 52 years, I think, rather than 56. But uh, it's very well covered. They've got a lot of reserves as well. And I guess the other thing there, I just noted again, their sort of annual management fee is now, what, 0.3%, dropping even further when they are you know above 4 billion, where they are indeed at this moment. So basically, they're having to compete with passive funds, essentially, and to a large extent with cost. Anyway, so still kind of solid, staple kind of holdings you can have, but not yet anything to really rattle the trees with or rattle your cage with in, in either of these two cases, I would yeah, say. Yeah, exactly. I think at the end of the day, the Alliance Trust has been through so much change over the past kind of decade in terms of what it's done. And, you know, it used to be a self-managed fund with a chief exec and an internal marketing department and had all of these asset management divisions and savings scheme businesses and things it's, it's been through lots of radical change. I think actually most shareholders would be happier just to see nothing much happen, actually just stick with it for a while. Yeah, they've certainly stabilised the ship and there was just a little too much sort of drama for some people's liking. A lot of personalities involved at one point as well. So let's move on then from those two staples of the investment trust sector, the global sector. And let's talk next about digital businesses, DGI9, one of the more recent newcomers to this new sector, digital infrastructure. And they've had a few issues, I think it's fair to say, since they launched, not least the fact that the two original managers, I think, are no longer there. So there's issues around that. That's always a slightly concerning state of mind. What's your view about DGI9? They reported some annual results. What did you make of them? These are really interesting because the sort of two digital infrastructure businesses were sort of sprung upon the market and grew really rapidly. 
So they're, they're quite new beasts. And I think all of us are sort of still getting our head around how they work and what the attraction is. But it's undoubted that there is this demand for what they're doing. As we consume more and more, more digitally, we need the telecom towers, we need the data centers, we need the broadband fiber in the ground, all the things that they're investing in. And they look as though they are the sorts of businesses that will chuck off reasonably predictable, attractive cash flows so that they don't look like risky ventures. I mean, there, there is a maybe some technological risk down the line, but it's, it's not immediate. So I do think these are interesting things. I think Digital Line has basically got its own problems, as, as you've highlighted there. The first one is that they lost a management team. And I think that's very unfortunate. I've been talking to other people about this and wondering whether there's a case for saying that, that managers should be tied in longer, especially when they're running new funds, so that they, they can't just decide to up sticks and walk out. They have to actually put the time in. And it, it is a bit off, really, but they did this, but there we go. That doesn't mean to say, though, as we, we've already seen, because it happened with Ecofin US Renewables, it's not impossible to go out and get another manager who's just as good, who will come in and make good decisions and the whole thing will carry on going. So from that point of view, I don't need to worry. There also wasn't a problem in that they didn't walk out in a position leaving a big pile of cash that hadn't been invested. In fact, it seems to be more the other way around, really, that I think they thought they'd be able to carry on raking in more and more cash. But of course, the, the minute the managers disappeared, the share price just collapsed. And it doesn't look like they're going to be able to raise new equity, but they've got sort of pretty firm commitments that they've got to make to keep funding the, the rollout of the business that they have invested in already. So they, they've got to scrabble around to find different ways of, of raising that money. And obviously, we, we know it's a cast iron rule that you, you cannot dilute existing investors by issuing shares at a discount. And I completely agree with that. I do think there's a case perhaps for having something more like a rights issue, perhaps, if they can make a, a real case for the, the, the fact that the money that they're going to be investing is going to actually earn decent returns, then, then a rights issue might work. What they seem to be looking at as well is, is syndicating part of their investment. So they, they own 100% or something, they, they might sell off a 25% stake in it to somebody else as a way of, of raising more money and doing it that way. That's probably going to dilute returns. It's probably going to be expensive for shareholders. That's very unfortunate, but this is where we are. Yeah, I mean, that's a more general point, isn't it, really? I think... We saw such a kind of headlong flood of new money coming into, obviously, established infrastructure sectors, but also these newcomers as well. I think they've they raised what the thick end of getting on for a billion pounds or something. So, I mean, that's a lot of money to, to throw at, a, at basically an untested proposition in a way. And they're finding that tough because the market, as you say, has dried up. They can't do what they were doing before, which is, you know, fund through equity. And so when managers leave, that's, that's always a problem, as you say, particularly in the early stage. And of course, Triple Point's got its issues elsewhere in the sector as well. It's battling on the social housing front as well with its trust there. So um, it's a tough time for them. So DGI 9, I mean, what sort of discount are we looking on there? We're looking at sort of 20, 25%, something like that. That's not going to come back in a hurry by the sound of it. I think because it's a new fund, as I say, we're, we're still all getting our heads around how it's going to work in the long run. I'm not necessarily inclined to go up and snuck up that bargain, if you do. I mean, I think I'm more to the jury's out. Let's watch and wait and see what happens because it isn't obvious at the moment where that extra cash to fund those investments is going to come from. And that might end up being diluted in some way. I mean, on that point you mentioned earlier also about deploying the funds and so on. You know, we saw what happened at Aquila Energy Efficiency where the, the shareholders basically said, we don't want to go on. You haven't done a good enough job yet or we haven't got to the right scale yet. So if you came to market quite recently and you missed out on the kind of easy market conditions, you're going to struggle, aren't you? I think whatever kind of business you're doing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'd like to think that most funds were sensible and, and didn't just carry on investing on the, on the assumption that they'd be able to raise cash. We know that a lot of them have got into the pattern of... Uh, running up a revolving credit facility until it was maxed out and then going right and raising money to pay that down again. But providing that debt facility is manageable and serviceable, then it is not the end of the world. Obviously, as we talked about with rates already, the cost of servicing those facilities has gone up. So that's something to be factored in. But no, I, I'd like to think there aren't too many examples of, of funds that sort of run out of cash in that kind of way. I have another trust that reported this week, which has a sort of related kind of issue is... Uh, 
Seraphim Space Investment Trust, you know, which was one of the, the kind of last of the more exotic new vehicles that came to the market during the post-pandemic boom market. You know, what could be more exciting than space? But it is, by definition, a very early stage investment proposition. And, well, they produced an NAV return of minus 7% or something for their last interims. But the shares are at a, you know, 55% discount or something. And uh, it's going to be tough for them because they're suffering both from being early stage and therefore very much out of fashion in a rising interest rate environment uh, and yet to prove themselves. So uh, what do you think the outlook for that particular uh, operation for? I mean, a lot of people thought it was quite sexy, if you like, but um, that isn't always enough. No, it isn't really. I think if it was me, I'd be hunkering down and, and waiting for the good times to come back again. It doesn't seem practical to me that they're going to be able to to raise more money uh, as much as they probably would have liked to. And as much as probably the things that they might be going to buy would be cheaper now, I still don't think that's going to be doable. So um, I think they've still got some cash left. From memory, I think it's about 40 million quid, but I might be wrong. And I would conserve that and use it to fund the existing portfolio where it needs it because most of those businesses, as you say, are quite early stage. It is completely at this wrong end of early stage on profitable growth that people are now shying away from. And so they, they might have to sort of pick and choose which, which of the portfolio is, is going to get that support and, and can be able to survive. And, you know, just a sort of kind of Darwinist approach to the portfolio and, you know, the best stuff lives and the rest of it, unfortunately, goes by the wayside. So they're basically forced into kind of picking winners rather than having a more diversified portfolio. And that just makes it riskier still. Yeah. Talking of trusts that have issues about scale and everything else, another one perhaps is worth mentioning this week is uh, US Solar Trust, which is, um, you know, obviously in the renewable energy sector. But they too have a problem about scale, do they not? And I think uh, there's a, an issue about they've got a strategic review coming up. And well, they've got some hard choices to make, I guess, as, as any trust in this kind of environment will have. Yeah. By the sound of things, they launched this strategic review last year and it's been dragging on a bit. But they're basically saying they're going to give themselves a little bit more time because there are a lot of people that have made various proposals. and then Some of them want to do some quite detailed due diligence on the company. Now it takes time to do it properly. Um, and so I think where they originally said, we're going to give you a result by the end of the first quarter, which would obviously be the 31st of March, I think they, that's now going to knock on a bit and maybe a month or two, while these things get nailed down. I'd imagine there are no shortage of people that would quite like to buy the portfolio. The big thing that changed since they started all of this, which has made it so incomprehensible to me, was the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, which has provided a wave of subsidies for nuclear energy investment in the US. Um, it just means that it, it's sort of like a little gold mine, I think, and it's that the sort of area that should be growing. But um, for whatever reason, the board decided to chuck the towel in. So, yeah, I, I do think it's going to get snapped up. I do think probably if it, if it ends up going out for cash, then it'll be quite close to asset value. Might it get a premium to asset value? I really don't know. It's possible. We're just going to have to wait and see what happens. But uh, I do think it's a shame. I do think... I would like to see some rollover offered to people that wanted to invest in this kind of area and want to maintain that. So I think it would be disappointing if, if that doesn't happen. I think I might be disappointed, but yeah, I think that's what should be going on. Well, I'd be interested to see how the board deals with this one. I think they said they were still expecting to get the outcome within the next six to eight weeks, but it's um, obviously worth taking a bit of time over that. And as you say, it could be potentially valuable, in which case... The shares are trading a discount now, a double-digit discount now, I think. So there could be some money to be made for some people in that one, yeah. depending on what happens. Okay, let's move on then and talk about strategic equity capital. I think that's probably the last trust results we're going to talk about this week. Interims they had, which not in themselves that important. They lost 6.9% in that period, I think, uh, in NAV terms. But this is an interesting one because, of course, this is managed by Gresham House. And the manager there has recently gone back to manage that trust, I think. And there was the long saga last year involving their battle with another investment trust, now called Rockwood Strategic, which they lost to uh, Christopher Mills & Co. And we talked to them recently. So the challenges on them is to perform as well as the other two Christopher Mills uh, franchises, if you like, which is Odyssean Investment Trust and Rockwood Strategic, both of which have done pretty well over the last year, uh, certainly in relative terms. So what do you make of this one? I mean, have you been following this one a long time? And uh, what do you make of their prospects? Yeah, very long time. I was actually an investor when it launched, but there we go. <laughs> I 
again, this is a fund that has a very concentrated portfolio. And so therefore, the performance is always going to be lumpy. And as it's happened more recently, they haven't had any big wins, whereas some of the, the Chris Mills type editions and that sort of thing, they, they definitely have. There's this ongoing thing that basically UK equities, because they've been so unloved, have got very cheap. And there are a lot of people running around putting the slide roll over these things. And there are going to be more bids. And it's the bids that have been driving the performance of the things that have been going up, of the funds that have been going up. And I do expect more of the same, really. I think as we go through 2023, you, you could see a few more takeovers. You can, and uh, street energy capital might be fortunate to benefit from some of those. But it, it's a pure stock picking thing. If you didn't hold the ones that were taken out, in uh, the past six months, then you, you probably liked and not much you can do about that. So it's, it's a wait and see thing. You know, it's a very similar investment approach for the two, but not a complete overlap of the portfolios, which I think is interesting that, that they can both find companies that they both think are, are interesting. They both go, go at it from the point of view of, here's a company, what would a private equity player think about paying for that? And so they're, naturally, these, these things have quite strong balance sheets. They're quite cash generative. They tend to be growing. So they're quite interesting businesses and providing nothing really goes wrong, then they are the sort of thing that does get taken out. I mean, I think for the moment, they're still the largest of the three, aren't they, in terms of you know market capitalization or, or whatever measure you choose to take, or net assets, whatever. But um, Addition's been uh, obviously growing quite nicely and is getting a bit closer, and Rockwood still has quite a long way to go. Uh, but I mean, the competition is healthy, and I'm sure they do look over each other's shoulder all the time. It's a bit like a, a sprint race. They're doing similar kind of things, and uh, that's good for the sector, I think, is it not? Yeah, definitely. definitely is. I would quite like to see Rockwood Strategic grow now. Because this was the one that they were fighting over last year, and it did shrink a little bit in the process of all of that, and it does now have very good performance. I think it actually might have been the best performing UK small cap fund last year. It was, um, yep. So, uh, yeah, I, I'd like to see that grow. Edition, because it's got quite a good track record, it's been trading close to so as much to issue a few shares, as you said. SEC at the moment, it's still the bridesmaid, but um, you never know. <laughs> Okay, so that brings me on then, uh, we're getting close to the end here, but we're talking about managers and so on. It's very important, obviously, and, and the more distinctive your approach, the more important the individual manager is. We've seen that come up many times. And we've recently seen a number of high-profile retirements or resignations or departures, whatever you like to call them. And we talked a lot about those last week uh, on the podcast. Uh, but interesting this week, I noted that um, Nick Greenwood is leaving Premier Mighton, and he's obviously the manager of uh, MyGo Opportunities Trust. Uh, which is very much uh, associated with him. He's been running it since 2004. So speculation is that uh, the board may well end up, as it were, giving the trust back to him, but under some other stable roof, shall we say. Do you think that's likely, or what do you make of this uh, announcement anyway? That was the only thing that I could think. When, when I saw it come up on the screen, I was, I was a bit sort of flabbergasted, and then I thought, well, actually, maybe he's going somewhere else and, and the board's going to give it to him where he turns up. Because as you say, yeah, I mean, he launched it back in 2004. He's the guy with the, the track record. He had a very good co-manager. She left and she's turned up at somewhere called Tyndall this week. I don't know if that's the ultimate destination. We'll, we'll just have to wait and see. But I, I'd be very surprised from, from all the conversations I've had with him over the years. I'd be extremely surprised if he's decided he wants to retire. And that's the end of that. So I imagine he wants to keep going. Uh, I imagine the board knows that uh, the shareholders are kind of backing him. So um, we'll see. <laughs> there we go. You can never know with these things. You never know what the true sort of story is. And then sometimes it leaks out months and years after. But um, there's definite room for a fund that's doing what Negro Opportunities is doing, which is looking at investment companies that are trading on big discounts and trying to back the ones that it thinks where well, there might be some discount now in the future. I know it's what I used to do, <laughs> do a distant pass, and so I may be slightly biased. But I, if in you know the end of all of this, it, it ended up disappearing, I think that would be an enormous shame. And then actually, it would be quite sort of damaging to, to the ratings of some of the funds that he's got. But um, I don't think that's the ultimate outcome here. I, I do think he's going to end up carrying on going. One suspects not. And normally these things, you know, there is a process you go through and, the kind of process that we've seen so far is one that's consistent with a manager turning up somewhere else and uh, eventually getting the, the trust. But of course, the board has to do its fiduciary duty and so on and uh, consider all the angles. And if there is other things behind the scenes, the trouble is we never really hear, as you say, 
no one comes out and says, I'm not saying this is the case here, but someone had a fist fight with the CEO or something, you know, had to, had to leave the company. I don't think that would happen here. But, you know, we never kind of hear about those things because there's always kind of legal people kind of sitting on top of it. And that can be unfortunate. So finally, I was going to bring up Henderson Opportunities Trust, which is a trust that's been around for, seems to be forever, as far as I can see, but actually not that long. But James Henderson, who's who's the lead manager on that, has been around for about as long as anybody. And uh, Henderson Opportunities, it's a funny sort of trust in a way, isn't it? Because it has sort of permanent gearing, structural gearing. So it's always geared and therefore its share price is very volatile. But it's also, it's not quite clear whether it's a, it's a small cap fund, a mid cap fund or what the hell it is really. Uh, it's just a kind of vehicle for James and his colleague Laura's stock picking skills. Anyway, at the AGM this week, there was a 24% vote against continuation, which I must have astonished me, frankly. Though the turnout was only about 25%, so it's actually a kind of quite a small number of shareholders again. But I mean, I guess the issue here is it's a quite a small trust still. Whatever you think about it, it's idiosyncratic, but it's, um, it's a quite a small trust. It's only got a market cap of less than 100 million, I think. So I wondered, I mean, James Henderson has a lot of other trusts and funds he manages, so but he's always taken a personal interest in this one. Do you think maybe that's a kind of warning sign, a canary in the mine, if you like, that maybe this trust hasn't got that much of a future anymore? I don't think so. Actually, it's, it's more the other way around. I think that so many people just took it for granted that, that nobody would vote against continuation, that most of didn't bother to vote. I think that's because, you see, a lot of people like James and Laura, and uh, this is his stock-picking fund. It's, it's not constrained by having to produce an income or you know all the other th- things that he does. This is, this is the thing that he sees a company and thinks that's a good little thing and, and, and tucks it away, regardless of the size. So it's an all-cap fund. And, it, yeah, it's good. It's a nice vehicle for him to run. And at times, I can remember when that's been the best-performing UK yeah. fund, and I'm, no doubt it will be again at some point. It's the nature of the stock picking things, he doesn't track an index by at all. Yeah, I think it, it, it's more that people took it for granted. And in the end, I worked out the numbers this morning. Had holders or a holder with, with 20% said, nah, I'm going to vote against continuation, it would now be dead. Uh, and that's appalling for, for something that I think most people quite like. So um, get out there and vote, people. This okay. is the message, really. At the end of the day, the, 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 this vote against, which was... It was only about six and a bit percent of the fund that was actually voted against uh, continuation, and they also voted, um, you know, against issuing shares and that sort of stuff. Quite easily, those sorts of resolutions can be blocked, and it would have just come down to the fact that, that people didn't vote. I know it's difficult. There was a whole thing. I, I was at the AIC directors conference this week, um, and the Harvey Sandstein people were there, and they were saying, you know, we are trying. We are trying to make it easier for you to vote your stock. I know it's a faff, and I know a lot of people don't really want to do it. A lot of people sort of buy stuff and just forget about it. But maybe not on every re-election of every director, maybe not on you know every sort of buyback resolution. But for continuation votes and the big things like that, I think you you probably should make the effort and, and do, do vote your stuff. So you need to pay attention, first of all, to make sure you know it's happening, and then you need to vote and to badger your platform, whatever it is, to do it for you. Though I think they are moving, aren't they? I mean, they're all finally kind of moving in terms of trying to make it a default thing to do that, which would be great, I think. I mean, I'm all for uh, compulsory voting, frankly, myself. I think it would be a very good thing. But there might be some accidents along the way, as you say. And it's worth saying, I mean, Henderson Opportunities Trust, you know, it has outperformed over one, three, five, and ten years. So, I mean, it's got a good record. So it's not like you could say, well, what were you doing? They've done okay, even though it's always bound to be volatile for that reason. So it's never actually, though, traded at asset value, as far as I can remember. And I suppose that might be part of the problem. Right. No, the trades are discount always, always, yeah. So that is that is an issue. So they can't raise any more money. They can't grow it that way. That's a fair point. Well, I was going to finish by asking about the ISC conference. I was due to be there myself yesterday, but unfortunately I couldn't make it for a whole variety of reasons I won't go into. So what did you make of it? I mean, the basic message seemed to be the retail investor, the kind of people, many of whom listen to this podcast, they're falling in love with investment trusts. And uh, obviously, from the investment trust sector point of view, they need to stay in love because it's been a very tough year. Discounts widening and all. You, know, you thought it was going to be an easy ride. You've been in for a bit of a wake-up call. But do um, you think the initiatives the AOC are making are helpful in terms of uh, trying to get wider ownership in amongst IFAs and, and encouraging trusts to be more open with their communication and so on? Yeah, I do. I do think so. I, the industry is quite introspective, actually. I mean, from the days when I first started looking at it, when you said... 25, 30 years ago, whatever it was, it was not really that bothered. It didn't feel like it. These wide discounts were there and and they just persisted and nobody really seemed to care. And and then a few activists started running around and they got a bit worried about it and thought we ought to do something. 
Fast forward to today, and it's a very different beast. And the AIC and people like Annabel Brody Smith, they are making real effort to try and get through to people, to try and extol the virtues of trusts. And I think they are actually making progress. There does seem to be a general trend, especially amongst retail investors. They put up some slides, I think, and the split of retail and institutional investors. Retail investors now has is, is gone over 50% of all trusts. So you, you are important if you're listening and the truck industry does care about you and wants to get more of you and wants more of your money. And also there was a lot of debate about how can we engage with people, especially the younger generation who are saving for the first time, how do you educate people properly? That was a, a lot of the sort of emphasis of the conference was all about that. It's just how you engage and inform. And that's kind of what we do for a living too. I mean, you know, both of us, I, we, I write endless amounts <laughs> of research and articles and things just trying to put across the, the kind of message that actually the industry is quite attractive. But we are battling some fairly powerful forces. And one of them we, we've already talked about, which is this thing about the ETFs and index tracking type funds. And they're simple to understand. And, you know, they seem to be doing okay. And, and if they outperform, then why wouldn't you just buy one of those? You know, so trying to get the message across about the attractions of long-term active management, you know, income and things like that. There are lots of boxes that the, the sector ticks and that make it useful that I, I just think, well, you know, it's, it's going to be a long-term winner, but, but we just have to keep battling. <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the difficult choices that you have to make when you're talking about investor trust is whether you accentuate the fact that discounts are potentially a source of return or also a source of risk, or whether you actually want to concentrate on what is the trust actually doing and don't get obsessed by discounts. Because I remember way back in the day when uh, Amish Buck and another kind of uh, pioneers in this sector were used to bang on about how well discounts don't really matter because they're exciting. They add a bit of you know excitement around the edges, but uh, you can spend far too much time thinking about discounts and not enough time thinking about what the actual vehicle itself is doing. And uh, that's where the superior performance on the whole comes from. It doesn't come totally from discounts, narrowing and so on. Yeah. And the, the fact that you democratize access to a wide range of asset classes that you'd never be able to access through a normal kind of open-ended fund. So property, leasing funds, renewable infrastructure and infrastructure and music rights and shipping. There's just endless different asset classes that, that you as, a, as an ordinary investor would never be able to get at. And private equity is a big one of those too. The trouble is, you know, a lot of those are trading on the side of the widest discounts now. <laughs> but that doesn't mean they're necessarily bad things. They're not doesn't mean necessarily bad investments. So um, Yeah. Well, I think investment trusts themselves have to work out this whole kind of funding dynamics of whether whether actually it's a good idea to chase money just because it's available or whether you want to have a more considered approach. And some of the best performing trusts over time are those that actually don't often raise more money. They make sure they make best use of what they've got first. And then the premiums will follow, but you don't want to have a premium just because you want to issue more stock. Otherwise, you're just behaving like an open-ended fund and you're just asset gathering rather than growing yeah, the business. exactly. The worst of all problems, I think, that the industry faces, and it's a continual thing, is that it's much easier to sell something that's been performing very well for a while. And so you get these sort of mini little bubbles with things where you know something does arrive for a couple of years and then on the back of that goes out and raises money and then turns out year two it starts to disappoint and then it really gets disillusioned again. How you stop people buying stuff because it's gone up and actually thinking about, well, maybe this is cheap because it's gone down, I don't know. But that to me is, is one of the battles that we, we really must try and fight. Well, we're going to battle on trying to do just that. And uh, so thank you, James, for your time this week. Very helpful and very uh, interesting as always. been a pleasure talking to you. Look forward to uh, the next time. Thank you very much. So this week, it was a pleasure to catch up again with uh, Stephen Tregett, who is a partner of Oakley Capital, to talk about the investment trust that uh, Oakley Capital is the manager for, which is Oakley Capital Investments, ticker OCI. Uh, they put out some annual results this week, and uh, very impressive they were too, an NAV total return of around 24% in a year when uh, both equity markets and bond markets took a dive. So a very good result, Stephen. We'll come back to talk about what happened to the share price and the rating of the trust in a moment, but uh, you must be pleased with the outcome at least. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, yeah, we're very pleased with the outcome for 2022. I think particularly when you consider that performance was set against a weak backdrop, you know, whether that's in terms of all the kind of headwinds that we all know about, inflation, supply chain disruption, interest rate rising, economic weakness. And so particularly keen to see that performance. And that performance as well has been largely driven, 65% of the value increase 
has been driven by the earnings growth of the underlying companies, which averaged 22% earnings growth. And that was against quite a tough comparable year. I mean, that, these are digital businesses typically, which performed well during the pandemic. I mean, average earnings growth in 21 was 30%. So off the back of that, and in despite of kind of a harder economic backdrop, you know, this performance is pleasing. Obviously, there's been a lot of scepticism, perhaps, about the validity of the valuations that uh, private equity trusts have been posting. Obviously, some of them come with a lag. Yours are more up to date than most. Uh, and there's been a lot of talk about comparisons with, with multiples in, in listed companies and so on. But you're happy to defend your NAV as being a uh, fair reflection, even though, as you said, some of it was due to multiple expansion when publicly listed companies were being derated, the multiples coming down. So is the reason for that because the, the kind of companies you're investing in and the performance of those specific companies, or do you at least recognize where investors are coming from when it's, they're talking about valuation doubts, should we say? Yeah, I mean, the first thing is absolutely. I mean, it's one of the, the big fears, isn't it? You don't have live pricing with private assets, which has its positives and negatives. I guess the things I'll point out regarding, you know, colloquially, I mean, firstly, yes, there was multiple expansion. The average multiple of those businesses that I've just described is 26 companies within the Oakley funds. The average multiple grew from 15.3 times to 15.9 times. EV EBITDA. And the vast majority of the multiple expansion that led to value creation was entirely, over 90%, was entirely down to realizations in those companies. So a third party coming in and buying a you know, kind of majority stake in those companies, and that's the valuation that they paid. And, and consequently and understandably, that's the valuation we hold those businesses at, or at least you know, they were sold at. I guess in terms of if you look at the NAV today, and, you know, what can I help provide confidence? Firstly, of those 26 companies, 11 of them had an event, typically a third party investment or a corporate action that involved someone externally, you know, kind of pricing that asset. So that's not us taking a view as to whether or not a company's, you know, got a certain value. You know, they've been externally priced, there's been an event. Secondly, and particularly to the end of December, We've revalued the whole portfolio every quarter, but at the year end, that is also not just audited, but it's independently valued by a third party for the OCI board. When we've sold assets historically, they've been at a 54% premium to that NAV. It was a 70% premium in 2022. So I think hopefully giving people, investors, the reassurance that you know, we're holding these assets at relatively conservative levels. Then to your point around comparing to the public markets, it's a tricky thing to do, given that you don't have, you're only talking about you know, a specific set of companies and then kind of overlaying the public market onto those. I mean, one, particularly in the world of you know, listed PE, and you only have a number of direct listed PE companies, investment trusts to kind of look to, but they typically focus on new economy, diversity disruptive companies, cash generative profitable companies, Compare that to the FTSE All Share, well, there's going to be a very distinct difference. And then, of course, there's casual terms. Tech has experienced a sell off, but certain bits of tech have. You know, those that have been pre cash generation, recently floated, previously VC backed companies where it's harder to attach a valuation based upon kind of recurring cash flows. It's more around multiples of revenue. And there has been a, a clear division in terms of that good tech, bad tech when it comes to valuations. If you look at the difference between those with a margin over 20% and the solidity of their valuations versus those under, there is a clear differentiation. And we're talking here about the companies typically within the Oakley portfolio. One, you know, they're growing EBITDA and underlying cash level consistently. Two, we're working with a founder. This is not a kind of corporate head of that business, a founder that has proven their success and we're investing alongside them on the same terms. And there's some form of disruption that is going to keep that business performing thanks to a mega trend that underlies it, that is going to help it to kind of continue to grow and deliver and not require additional funding, I should point out, into the near to medium term, regardless of the economic backdrop. I mean, all reasons why it's quite a blunt thing just to kind of look at PE and, and assume it should be doing exactly what the public market's doing. I should also point out, if you wanted to own, be a control investor, take, take a public company private, we all know the public market insists on a 20 to 30% control premium. Now, we have that control premium. We're not sitting on assets that we're valuing 20, 30% above the public market. Far from it. 
Right. So essentially what you're saying, as I hear you, is your valuations are conservative in the first place. Many of our companies are profitable as opposed to being kind of more blue sky venture-ish sort of ventures. And you do have this kind of degree of control, which justifies a premium over time. So given all that... I still say, John, we don't cling to the valuations for the sake of it. And we have brought the multiple down in eight of those portfolio companies. So there are some that have had a kind of repricing because of an event, and that's brought the multiple up. But there are some we brought the multiple down as well. Their value has increased still because of the growth of those businesses. So we're not artificially maintaining a multiple for the sake of it. And of course, we're not incentivized to. We get no fee increase based upon the value which we hold a business at. We are only remunerated at realisation. Of course, and that's an important point. What I was going to go on to say, though, of course, there was given all those factors which you put forward, you must be disappointed, therefore, that the share price total return last year was around 1% as opposed to NAV 24%. So you kind of might conclude that the market just isn't buying your story. Do you think that's a fair comment? I mean, you made a big effort to communicate better, which personally I applaud. Your annual report wins lots of awards and you've got lots of information and data out there. So do you think this is a, a failure on the market's part or... Uh, do you have some sympathy with way, the way the prices have gone? I think firstly, well, actually, although 1% shareholder return isn't particularly inspiring, I mean, the shareholder return is higher than the FTSE all share. So it's, it's outperformed the obvious benchmark. Secondly, it's one of the second or third highest shareholder returns within listed PE. So, so OCI isn't coming under, you know, particularly unfair treatment the best NAV performers have produced the better shareholder return. So from that perspective, you are getting a better return by virtue of, of holding us. And, you know, it's just been a weak period for share prices, of which OCI has one. And the sell-off in investment trust is pretty indiscriminate. I mean, it has been. 14 of the 16 investment trust sectors are all sitting at significant discounts. And the average discount within PE is 30%, of which we sit roughly along those lines. I think that what encourages me is that it is indiscriminate. You know, there has been a wise sell-off. You see, you know, kind of fear grip the market. You see capital exit from the market, and particularly exits from kind of small mid-cap and mid-caps. And that means you have poor liquidity at those times and you have false selling. And that's going to undermine the performance of any mid-cap like us. Now, confidence will return. And when it does... Someone close to the eye will have proven its resilient performance through a particular tough economic and public market backdrop. And we, and for many of the sector, will have proven that we are way more robust than maybe this sector was and some of its, some of the cohort were back in the global financial crisis. So actually, this I feel is a really defining period for this asset class. It's a real opportunity to prove that we do have resilient businesses. We do give you access to the kind of company that maybe isn't available in the public market, that we can add value by virtue of the fact that we are majority controlled investors. And so I see this as a real event horizon for these assets. And as a result, fully expect them alongside doing all the other things you'd imagine, like buybacks, like continuing to communicate well, seeing the underlying performance come through and getting scale, that all that will be reflected in a kind of positive share price performance, you know, kind of this year and beyond. So you mentioned the share buybacks and you bought back 2.2 million shares last year out of a total share count of 178 million. So that's uh, just over 1%, I guess, on my maths anyway. <laughs> and you did that uh, up to a price of about £4.30. And the current share price is around 463 or something like that, I'm looking this morning. So the buybacks will continue, presumably, but they haven't had that much effect so far. Would it be fair to say that? Or would the board take a different view about that? Well, look, I mean, you don't have a control test. You don't know what would happen if you didn't buy back. So it's hard to kind of make that call. I think firstly, you buy back because you want to enhance shareholder returns. You are comparing what a pound, you know, buying the OCI shares should deliver you in returns versus a pound put into the fund, for example. So that's the first thing. And with a discount, that is a significant return you can get by buying your own shares. So that's the reason you do it. Now, it happens to have the secondary benefit of providing a very strong message to the public markets to say there is a lot of faith in the NAV and clearly this represents a very good investment for the capital of this firm. And so, you know, that does have a secondary effect. There isn't actually much science around the kind of buybacks and narrowing investments, but it is a good investment, full stop. 
the thing that drives the decision isn't necessarily the level of the discount. What drives the decision by the board, and they review this every quarter, and they are very pro-buybacks, is cash. And the balance between the cash that's required to meet further investments within the funds and then the excess cash over a kind of a short to medium term view, they deploy in buybacks. Now, actually, last year was a very active year. Cash was very much put to work. We have cash cover of about 100 million and a facility of about 100 million. And that gives us, you know, kind of cover for the next year or so in terms of if we just in the normal course of activity of the Oakley funds. However, I don't know exactly what the future brings. We have to take a relatively conservative stance to make sure we can meet our commitments. They don't leave us with a huge amount of excess cash. So if you don't see us buying back, that's not because we're not saying 465 is the wrong price for a buyback. Far from it. You know, while the company's trading around these levels, there are very attractive levels to do buybacks. The ability for us to continue to do them is all around excess cash. Right. So on that point, I was going to come on to that. I mean, you mentioned you've got about 210 million, I did have at the end of the year in terms of cash and a credit facility, but you've got 929 million of commitments, uh, but they won't all be drawn and they will come over the next five years. But I guess there was a cash drawdown about 50 million last year, as I read it. Uh, does that mean you're going to be perhaps slowing down the pace of things that you might otherwise be doing you know, in, an, in an ordinary year? In other words, have you going to sort of rein in a little bit because of the constraints around uh, around how much cash is available and given where your businesses are at the moment? No, it's not holding Oakley back in, in that deployment for a number of reasons. Look, we actually think that should there be a deep European recession, you know, that could present a lot of disruption within the markets, rising cost of debt. You know, a lot of companies maybe have the wrong balance sheet structures, overcapitalized in that sense. And we think that will throw up a lot of opportunities. And so we're in no hurry to make investments ahead of that. So, you know, there's, there's no hurry on that extent. On the other side, the market for high quality premium assets is unabated. If you've got a high quality premium asset, there's a scarcity of those. And we're talking about high quality earnings, high growth, and a you know, very dominant market position in an attractive market. Those companies are continuing to sell at premium ratings at auction. And there's reasonable access to debt for those companies. So should we want to, there's a pretty strong environment for us to sell assets in. Remember as well, we sell assets to the big, to the large global P sponsors who are sitting on the highest level of dry powder in that funds in their history. You know, around about three trillion. So there is a strong environment there for us to sell assets into if we want to. But you know, we're in no hurry to do that. But we're reasonably confident over the next twelve to eighteen months, you know, there will be further exits or refinancings of the businesses, or the possibility of some direct debt being repaid. All of which will provide additional cash inflows into Oakley. And when we make a commitment to a fund or OCI makes a commitment to a fund, they're essentially giving you a cash flow forecast of what they anticipate being the incoming funds. And while, while we have a big number of outstanding commitments at 929 million, but 800 million of that has only just been committed to one of the Oakley funds. And so as you rightly pointed out at the beginning of this, you know, that's capital that's going to be deployed over five or so years. Okay, finally then, given that backlog, I just wondered whether I could ask you about, uh, there's a couple of direct holdings you have. Perhaps you could call them sort of more problematic children, problem children. That's uh, North Sales and Timeout. What's the prognosis for those? I mean, you are moving away as an investment trust from making direct investments and putting them all in through the fund, Oakley Capital Funds. Is there any likelihood of action on those two this year? I think the kind of positive message for both is that they both have emerged from the pandemic in different ways, but encouragingly strong. I mean, North, that's more demonstrable in that they have gone from a small amount of EBITDA to their sale and manufacturing business returning to its kind of cash cow large status. And the two growth areas that we invested in, kite surfing and windsurfing and the apparel business have now really broken out into profitability. And so a group now generating 26 million of EBITDA and dollars versus you know single digit numbers last year. So we've got a business doing record EBITDA. The interest in that company is significant. The potential for a refinancing of that is is kind of material, all of which may or may not lead to some kind of repayment of the direct debt that currently exists to that business over the next year. Time out is half me to be as open because it's a public company, but we see its interim results are going to be published on the 30th of March. And with that will be another sign, an opportunity for the company to kind of show how it's emerging from the pandemic. The existing markets 
moving back into profitability, new markets being signs for the time out food beverage and cultural markets that they have, another eight of those, four of which were signed in the kind of recent months, and a media business which has really moved quite significantly back into profit, all of which I think points to a very rosy future in the next year or so for timeout. We are in no hurry to sell the equity stake in timeout at the wrong price. And at this particular price, it is very much the wrong price. And so we'll wait and see how the public markets responds to better clarity about the future prospects of timeout. Okay, so that was Stephen Treddit, a partner of Oakley Capital, talking about the latest uh, annual results from Oakley Capital Investments. One, as he pointed out, one of the best performing trusts in the private equity trust sector, particularly uh, well over the last 12 months and also over the last five years. It's a particularly strong record over that time frame. That is all for this week. My apologies for a rather croaky voice this week. I picked up something not very agreeable in Holland a few days ago, but onwards and upwards. Another interesting week in the markets. I'm looking forward to discussing what happens next. So please do join us again next week. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.